Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Social Innovation Asia podcast. I'm here, as always, with Dan McFarland. Dan, welcome back. How are you? Yeah, thanks a lot, Michael. It's great to be here again. Good to have you here. We are in the FHI 360 offices in Bangkok, yeah. and we're really lucky to have with us um, Josh Woodard, who is the Regional ICT and Digital Finance Advisor. Welcome to the show, Josh. Yeah, th- thank you, guys. It's great to be here. Yeah. Josh, you've been in Thailand a while now, and you've been working with FHI 360 for quite a few years. Could you give us a little bit of insight into what brought you here? Sure. Yeah, so I I first came to Taiwan professionally as a Peace Corps volunteer in 2005. I was in a small village in Tsukonakon province, which is in the northeast of the country. Um, and this was two years plus assignment. Actually, a very interesting time to be in the Peace Corps in Taiwan, because it was sort of at the cusp of when technology was starting to make its way into communities, um, but not fully there yet. When we talk about sort of more modern digital technologies, right, so... What year was that? This was 2005. Got it. Yeah. Um, So there was no... The only internet access in the community where I lived was satellite through the... The school had a a hookup, which sometimes was there, sometimes wasn't. Nobody had mobile data on their phone, so you know, it was, you could call, you could SMS, and that was it. Right. Um, and so I, I did some stuff, actually, uh, in... T- I have always had an interest in sort of low-tech technology, and so I, when I was there, I did a lot of uh, work with helping the community think about how they can use technology in, their, in the work that they were doing. So, for example, there was a women's group that was doing juice and wine from a local berry um, that pretty much only grows in the mountains of, uh, of that part of Thailand. And I helped them to use Excel to, because they already had a computer, thankfully, helped them to use Excel to do their bookkeeping, as opposed to this old ledger that they had, a paper-based ledger. Right. Um, you know, did some, at the local government office, the sub-district government, they had um, computers there, and massive issues with viruses. Nobody had any clue about computer viruses so I did a training with about computer viruses for them where I basically you know it basically was a health ed training but for viruses yeah so saying like you know how you have you know your flash drive and then there's a computer well don't just stick your flash drive in any computer without taking protections right. um, so anyway so I was in Peace Corps uh, that gave me a, a real taste of my first experience for um, and I had been a little bit into my career at that point uh, before I went to Peace Corps, it gave me a sense of the world of international development, which I didn't even know was a thing right. before then. Um, so when I moved back to the U.S., uh, about a year after Peace Corps, I stuck around in Bangkok. Um, I decided I would look for opportunities in international development. Um, found an opportunity with an organization called um, AED. It used to stand for Academy for Educational Development. Um, and I that organization was acquired uh, about seven or so years ago by FHI um, and then that's how FHI 360 uh, sort of came out of that okay. uh, so I was in DC for about six years mm-hmm. um, and then I've been out in Bangkok for the past four and a half years and for the most of that time I've been working in um, what's now called digital development before we used to talk about it as ICT for D mm-hmm. now a lot of people call it digital development. basically it's you know thinking about how can we use digital technology um, in ways that are appropriate and can effectively help us to achieve uh, development objectives or help you know help us to better achieve development objectives that we're working on, help to overcome challenges that we're facing in our work. Right. Uh, and so because FHI 360 
works across the whole range of development and um, and humanitarian, increasingly a little bit humanitarian work. Uh, it gives an opportunity to really experiment and help our programs in, in health and civil society, education, um, economic growth, and resilience um, to think about how technology can help them to do things, maybe a little bit more effectively. Yeah, so that's what we want to talk to you a lot about today is this tech for resilience. Before we get into that, could you give us a little bit more of a picture around what FHI 360 does as a broader organization? Yeah, so FHI 360 is an international nonprofit. Um, we are working to improve the health and well-being of people um, in both the United States and globally. So we Globally, we're working in more than 60 countries. We have more than 4,000 staff. Um, and as I said, we're working across a range of sectors. So, of course, it, FHI 360 has its roots in health, and we still do a lot of work in the health sector. Um, but we also we do a lot of work in other sectors as well, so education, um, civil society, uh, economic growth, economic development, livelihoods, um, in the financial inclusion space, or um, and then the digital technology space is sort of cross-cutting, right? So that right. cuts across. And resilience is also sort of cross-cutting, and we can talk more about that um, as well. But And in, in Asia, we have uh, a regional office based in Bangkok, right? so we're working in probably a dozen to 15 countries in okay. Asia at the moment. So you're based in Bangkok, but how much of your work is focused on things happening in Thailand, or is it more, most of it, a, a regional focus you have? It's mostly a regional focus. So um, I'm based in our office here. I work on, the things that I do in Bangkok are mostly things that have a regional focus. Yeah. So for the resilience work that we're doing, it's a regional focus, but it's, a lot of it's happening out of Bangkok. So we, just for an example, in November, this past November, we did a two-day workshop on digital technologies for resilience. Um, it was our second one, and that was based in Bangkok. Um, the first one was also based in Bangkok. But most of the actual project work that I'm doing is not in Thailand. Okay. So That's I'm traveling a, ro- a lot around the region. Great. All right. So yeah, you mentioned this, this tech for resilience. It's an actual project you've been leading for some time. Is that right? Could you just give us a yeah. explain that and where it's the background to it and where it is at this point? Yeah, so we, at the moment, we're at the tail end of um, some grant funding we had from the Rockefeller Foundation to focus on digital technologies for resilience with a primary focus on Asia. Uh, and, you know, what the Rockefeller, they had made investments in the resilience space. They're one of the founding members of 100 Resilient Cities, um, some other efforts. And what they were seeing was that their, um, the conversation as it relates to digital technology for resilience, there wasn't a lot happening. We, FHI 360, we had some work that was funded by USAID, um, and this was through a project called MSTAR, which is still ongoing, uh, and I'm also part of. And about, I want to say this was in... 2016, uh, we hosted a, a workshop um, or a summit with USAID called Harnessing the Data Revolution for Resilience. Right. What exactly is resilience? In other words, in your mind, what are you thinking about when you think about resilience? What are you trying to make resilient? Where's the lack of resilience? What does that mean? Yeah, so it's a great question. It's very There's a lot of debate in the community about what sure. that means. So I'll... 
I'll just read for you the definition that we use Super. just to make sure that we have it right. So in our minds, resilience is the capacity of individuals, communities, and systems to survive, adapt, and grow in the face of stress and shocks, and even transform when conditions require it. Building resilience is about making people, communities, and systems better prepared to withstand catastrophic events, both natural and man-made, and, e- and able to bounce back more quickly and emerge stronger from these shocks and stresses. So that's the Rockefeller Foundation um, definition, which we've adopted as well. Um, okay, so then how does technology play a part in that? I mean, I guess that's one of the overriding questions, right? Yeah. So one of the things that we wanted to find out, you know, so when Rockefeller approached us and asked us to look at, well, what's, how is technology being used right. for resilience um, in Asia? And so the first thing we did is we set out to find out, well, how are people using technology? And so we did a, we had a crowdsource um, sort of call for saying, if you're working in Asia and you're doing, you know, if you feel like you, the work that you're doing with digital technology is impacting resilience, we want to hear from you. Right. right. And we didn't predefine what resilience meant, but we sort of said, here's our definition, but people define it differently. So if you feel like it's what you're doing is related to resilience, let us know. And so we put out this call. I mean, I've since I've been working in this space for a while and I've been in Asia for a while, my, I have a pretty good network, so I sent it out through my networks. We also sent it through channels that, you know, like um, newsletters and others that are working in the space, other um, networks that we have. Anyway, so we sent this out. We got more than 100 submissions back, um, and they're pretty diverse. Who are the general responders? So, in general, we had people who... I say people, but really they're representing organizations. That's obviously, right. Know, yeah. So uh, a lot of them are organizations that are working in the mm-hmm. development sector. Uh, we also had, so that would be like an FHI 360, um, you know, like a, a CARE, a World Vision. I mean, is it not to give, I mean. Yeah, not to promote yeah, any particular. Not to promote any, but, just but yeah. People like this. People like that, right? Yep. Um, we also had smaller uh, grassroots type organizations that are nonprofit um, that are doing work in the community, right. um, but not sort of tied to the bigger international development yep. um, beast. And then we also had uh, tech firms that are doing work in the space. Now, what I'll say for the tech firms is that I think that it's interesting. So a lot of tech firms that we had are ones that are already in the orbit of the development world, right? So they're engaging with the development sector in some way. And so there's maybe there's some relationship already happening where they partnered with a big NGO or a right. local NGO. What I think we were lacking, which has been a, a hard thing to identify, are there are startups, there are tech firms that are doing stuff that really have a resilience impact, right? Yep. But they don't view it through that lens. Right, right. So when we put it out there to them, even if they saw it, was what is resilience? And yeah, so right, that has nothing to do with it. Us. Doesn't mean We're anything just doing to do with this thing. Exactly. Whatever that so is, yeah. I think we missed some of that. Fair enough. I think we missed some of the. Do you think that comes down to how you communicate development to the broader audience? I do. I think there's a communications element to it for sure, and I think just communicating what does what do we mean by resilience, and how does that yeah. relate to what people are doing. Right, because for me, what resilience means is basically. If, I mean, I gave you a long definition, but you know, the basic essence for it to me is it's all about a positive framing for how we think about individuals, communities, and 
systems or yeah. governments. So if that's the case, right, can you give an example of tech that actually is built or has been built for that resilience? Yeah. In your experience. Yeah, I mean, with... And one that is... That they might not see it well, as resilience, right? Better. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think if we look at something like... Let me try and give a okay. one that's a common one that people will mm-hmm. know, right? Uh, okay, let me go with a one that maybe is a bit more abstract, but I think really does touch on resilience, Max, right? So if we look at uh, chat messaging yeah. apps, right? Like Line or yeah. WhatsApp. Line or WhatsApp, right? Yeah. I mean, they're clearly... Their bread and butter has nothing to do with resilience. But they have, they're being used in ways that actually are enhancing people's resilience. Yeah, because the bottom line is as long as they have a connection to the cellular system, if something really goes wrong, if that's their last line of defense, that's really powerful. Yeah, and I mean, you have it for like when it comes to response, right? Right. If there's like a disaster and then people are communicating. Um, but it's also people are using it. So I remember. Years ago, I used to do a lot of work. I still do a little bit, but I used to do a lot of work in digital technology and agriculture. Mm-hmm. And this was probably about seven years ago. Uh, there was a, a pretty um, well-known, at least in that circle, example of a group of farmers in India that had started organizing through one of the messaging platforms. Right. So what they were doing is they were communicating with each other about... Uh, pricing, mm-hmm. and this was not dependent on. You know, there are also market price systems that exist, right? But this was not market price system. This was just people self-organizing right. and saying, "Hey, you know, we can actually get a better price if we all organize." And so the the messaging platform enabled them to do that. So they formed a group. They formed a group, yeah, and they were able to um, actually get better pricing as a result of that. Um, now, there's nothing inherent in the messaging platform itself that's helping resilience, but it has a re- it can be used for resilience outcome, mm-hmm. right? Um, it can also be used for detrimental. <laughs> sure, <laughs> but that's the reverse of what yeah. we were talking about earlier, that uh, those unintended consequences, right? Yeah. In other words, that's a positive unintended consequence. When they built WhatsApp or Line or whatever the chat mechanism is, they didn't consider the fact that four farmers who were isolated, right, because you're removing the isolation, Yeah. yeah? and we're getting pricing from people that had more information than they did, can now say, hey, what did you pay for those seeds? Yeah. Oh, I paid X. Interesting. That's not what I heard. And then they organize, and then they can organize around more topics, and they have more power. Exactly. And that's actually very um, resilient. Mm. Yeah. 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 If they understood themselves as an organization or a business that was driving resilience, do you think they could do more? Or is there something yeah. you, you identify, you could see if they if they could structure their applications of WhatsApp online in Thailand and in Japan, could structure it in a way which would be more in favor of development than it already is? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you've already started to see this when it comes to response to disasters, right? Where Facebook has their check-in, now the emergency check-in, right? right? Now there's lots of critiques about that as a... Facebook is a platform, but also that is a function. But anyway, I mean, that's them saying we can try and turn this on and use it to help people mm-hmm. to ensure that they're safe. Um, there's And those are all sort of reactive to when there's something that happens. Right. But if we look at it from a proactive lens as well, yeah, I think there is. You know, if we think about, you know, just how can uh, – I don't know – I can't give you an example off the top of my head, but certainly um, if we look at 
the one I just talked about, mm-hmm. um, this was just individuals realizing they could use messaging apps to organize. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, if there was something that was built into that to make it easier to connect with people, um, yeah, potentially. You know, right. There's ways that they could frame it. Now, whether or not that would be beneficial to the bottom line is another question. So that's something that often is a, you know, an issue that comes up. Reb, one of the things we talk about a lot is this: there's a secular change going on in big companies, or at least there should be, and particularly in society's view of profits and profitability and a drive to like only being profitable. Yeah. And that is, if you're operating in a social space, you have a responsibility at some level, without getting into CSRs particularly, mm. to have tools that will create sustainability and resilience. Yeah. Right? Regardless of whether it makes you any extra money. We talked about this with some of the other people that we've had on the program. Yeah. And that, that ends up being really important. And then at some point that loops back around to stickiness on the platform, which at some point does lead to more profitability. Yeah. And ultimately, I mean, if you take a really long view, long view of it, yep. that if we have more resilient communities, right. they are going to be economically better off. Absolutely. On the whole, right. right? Not always, but you know, if they're able to, if they're better prepared for um, shocks and stresses, sure. and if they're better able to, you know, if they have more opportunities, then they will more likely to be economically in a better place, which then means that they are more likely to then spend that, <laughs> their resources on on things. So yeah, I mean, I think it benefits everyone to have that um, that sort of positive framing of resilience. To think about well, how can we just make individuals and communities and countries as a whole, the world, stronger. Right. So do you have some examples from, so we talked about some platforms like Line or WhatsApp, but some of the enterprises and organizations in your network, what have they been doing and how have they been somewhat maybe leveraging some of these communication platforms to build greater resilience in communities? Sure, yeah. So, and I'll preface this by saying there's a lot of examples. I'm sharing some that, you know, I think are just interesting examples to share, but right. it's not me saying that these are the best right. or that, it's just you know, top of mind. Just example. top of mind, right? Yeah. Um, who knows, in a year from now, some of them might not be around, but I'll try and give a, a few different examples based on where they're coming from, right? So the Pulse Lab in Jakarta, it's under the UN, right? So it's a UN sort of funded type of entity, but they also get funding from governments. They have been doing some really interesting stuff. Um, they have one platform that they've developed called um, Haze Gazer, uh, which is helping in Indonesia the government to identify uh, the haze that yep. you know comes in oftentimes from burning of forests and whatnot, right? And so what they do is they're using satellite imagery, but they're also using um, social media feeds. So they're looking for uh, keywords that people are talking about to try and identify you know where there might be hotspots and to help the government to respond. Right, so basically, more they're using social listening. Exactly. Identify something going on around the, with the environment, which is an interesting yeah, and that's and use of um, so, social media, isn't it? Exactly. So that's you know, and they have that layered on top of also satellite imagery and and other uh, data sources. So I think that's an interesting thing that is you know being it's government partnered with UN agency that's basically leading that right, and that makes sense for something like that. Where we're talking about you know a, a response to haze or forest fires, the government really has to be leading that. Um, there's another example that I think is interesting that's really partnering very closely with the private sector. Um, there's a, so they're called, the company is called Next Billion, 
Um, yeah. They're based out of Singapore, and they have an initiative called Mobile Movies. And with Mobile Movies, what they do is basically they um, they have somebody who goes into community and they play movies and they have educational content on something like hand washing, right? Mm-hmm. So if they're doing something like hand washing, then that is often that's sponsored by a Uh, Yeah, something like that, right? Who's They're selling silk. Silk, Um, And so what they found is that, yes, of course, I mean, so the brand likes it because they're increasing sales in rural communities. But actually, they're also, because they're bringing this educational message to it, they're helping the community to understand better hygiene. And we, every day, 360 does a lot of work in WASH as well. I mean, it can be a challenge sometimes to get the scale at a nationwide level for promoting messaging. So I think this is an interesting just example of them using, and they're using low-tech, right? It's, it's video. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been around for a while. They're showing it on a, on a mobile device. So an organization um, like Unilever, a company like Unilever, would sponsor this to provide the funding exactly. to go around and pr- pr- showcase these movies, yeah. plus the advertising and the sponsorship. Exactly. Yeah, so you're able to then, you know, that's not dependent on a donor to to push it out, right? So the messaging is getting out. Um, now, I'm sure people have their opinions one or the other on whether that's the right way to do it, or, but that's, I think, just an interesting example of that merger of for-profit um, sort of uh, incentives or what, you know, their, you know, what they're trying to achieve mm-hmm. and the development yeah. sector aligning. So FHI as an organization, I think it's a, this is a good time to actually ask this question, but as an organization, you're constantly doing evaluating whether these things are actually resilient. And then the next question is sustainable. So have you built any tools to be able to do this and to be able to make these evaluations? Yeah, so thank you um, for that question. It's a good one. There's That's one of the most challenging things, I think, that we find in our work. And I'll say on the evaluation side, sort of after the fact, right. um, we have colleagues, we have a... Um, a research and evaluation team that is really sort of focusing on trying to figure out how do we determine the the development outcomes and you know the link to interventions and all that and that is way beyond where the stuff that I'm able to talk about right because I'm I'm more on the front end so I only talk about the front end and how I'm trying to you know what we're trying to do to help people at least be more likely to try and succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, yeah, and the measurements thing is a whole other ballgame. But we, one of the things that I've seen in my work in the space is that oftentimes when people, when practitioners, development practitioners, uh, in, so in the resilience space or whatever, right, they, they know their sector really well. You know, they're a health person, they're a, an Aggie, they're a whatever, a wash person, they know that really well. But then when it comes to thinking about how to use technology to help them to achieve their objectives. They might not know that as well. They might not understand the nuances as well. And so you'll get sometimes um, a tech firm will come and they'll pitch this, it sounds great, like we can do this and help you do that. And so if you don't know the questions to ask, you might say, great, let's do that. That sounds great. Um, And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. So one of the things that we want to do is help organizations to be able to plan more effectively in terms of how they're even thinking about technology. And then once you've planned and you're thinking about potential partners, then give you a deeper level of questions to think about for due diligence. So how do we know that this partner is the right one for us? So you've actually developed a tool to enable and empower organizations to go through that 
due diligence process in terms of like evaluating the, the tech that they are trying to incorporate to solve a particular issue that they're addressing. Yeah. So could you give us some insight into some of those questions or key key questions that you ask or you think should be asked by an organization when they're looking at using a tech for a, addressing a particular issue they have? Sure. So in the tool that you know you mentioned, we have a, a component that's focused on planning, right? And one of the one of the aspects in there that we talk about is the tech alignment. So the technology that you're thinking of using how well does this align to your actual users' needs, right? Not just what do we think our users' needs are, um, but how well does it actually align to that? And not just their needs, but their capacity, their access. Do they have access? If you're thinking of something that's app-based, do the people that you want to work with, do they have smartphones? Right, right which I um, often see people, uh, there's this movement to develop apps to solve any right. kind of social issue, and right. often the, the target audience are not using smartphones yet. And right. a lot of developing countries, even the country that I'm most familiar with, Cambodia, you know, the adoption of smartphones is somewhat plateaued. You know, it's at th- maybe 30, 40 percent at this point. And the target audience are those people often who are not using smartphones, but apps are being developed for them. Yeah, right. Uh, so there's this mentality right over here that says, "I'm using an app to solve." you know, my transportation problem. So let's build an app to solve this resiliency problem. Mm. And yet, for the transportation, everyone that's using that app actually has a phone or a yeah. smartphone or a device to use it. Yeah. And for the resiliency, those people may not have access to it, which gets back to this other issue you were bringing up before about electricity and simple things like yeah, that. Yeah, because even like if you have... So let's look at Myanmar as an example of a country yeah. where actually the smartphone ownership is pretty high compared to the region just because of, in terms of where they came in right. to the game when yeah. they opened up their market. Yeah. Yeah. But... If you go into some rural parts of the country, they still don't have um, mobile network there, right? right? Um, so they might have a smartphone, but they don't have mobile data. So even if you just say, oh, well, no, I checked. People have smartphones, yeah. but do they have access to mobile internet? And can they afford it, right? Because if they can't, then it doesn't matter if they have a smartphone okay. because they're not going to be able to use yeah. what you've developed. Get, the interesting thing about smartphones and apps is electricity use. Mm. Right? So in a lot of remote areas in countries like Myanmar or Cambodia, they're, they're off the grid. Mm. Right? And so they need to use uh, car batteries to yeah. power their mobile phone. Now that works to a degree with an old kind of Nokia, right? because you know you can get it, it'll last a week. Yeah. But for a smartphone, which you need to charge nearly every day, right? Right, that kind of off the grid electricity consumption doesn't work. Can you really charge a cell phone with a car battery? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. people really do that. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's normal. Because you said it like everybody knows that, but I'd never heard that right. before. No, in um, so no, go ahead. Rural Myanmar, Cambodia, it's the it's the norm. That's so cool, actually. In a way. I didn't know that. Okay, but yeah, but you can't like so, do that every day, right? So in a rural village in Cambodia. Um, off the grid villages, yep. there would be a, a micro business in the village of someone who, would, with a generator, would charge batteries for everyone else in the village. And they'd come around and they got you pick up the battery once a week and charge it for the rest, something like that. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's really cool. But again, it's they because they're using a car battery, they're very sort of careful in how they use electricity. So they'll only turn on the TV for a you know, one or two hours in the evening, they'll be very careful how much mobile charging they do. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, to the... 
some other issues, you know, to the point that you were asking about, you know, what are the key questions to ask, right? So, that, I mean, this, the user factor is huge. I mean, I can't understate that. I mean, people need to really be thinking hard about the, the capacity right. and the access right to users. Right. But beyond that, you know, there are other things like um, sustainability is a huge one that I see in the development sector. Yeah. Right? So, or lack of sustainability, I should say. So one of the things that, you know, I've, um, you know, you often see is that a lot of these things are funded by a donor initially through a, a grant funding or a contract, right? And so it's easy to build something. You can find a lot of people to pay to build something, or even if it's already built and you're just subscribing to a service, right? So you're partnering with a tech company and you're subscribing to their service. Um, you can pay for that, right? And then, but the project funding will end at some point. So then what? Right? There's way too many examples, more than I can cite, um, of just think technologies or software or services that actually were really good. They were having a, a positive impact, but no one ever thought through or they tried to think through too late. Well, how is this going to live after um, the donor funding ends? Mm-hmm. And in some cases, you know, I think there is a a valid case to be made that, well, certain things always should be funded by governments or, you know, someone else that's not, doesn't have a profit motive, right? right? For example, health services, you know, you can make the case of, of that. But a lot of things, no, they do need to be funded somehow. Um, and even if the government's funding it, well, is the government on board? You know, so you have to think through these questions. So we have uh, a module in the tool to just really prod people to think through the questions of what are your your recurring costs going to be for what you're planning to do and how is that going to be paid for and what do you have who do you have to do what do you have to who do you have to partner with yeah are you seeing in your network are there examples of organizations which have addressed that part of the i guess the equation quite well which could be a guide for other organizations yeah you know i think that there a lot of organizations are trying. I mean, that's the good thing that at least people are thinking about it now mm-hmm. and, and trying to figure it out. Um, at the at the workshop that we did just this past November, mm-hmm. there was actually there's an interesting example from BBC Media Action yep. um, out of India, which there's in some ways this is counter to what we're just talking about, but I think it's still a good example. So they had a a a couple of mobile health. Um, Services that they were had developed, mm-hmm. um, and they were in, they had been running them with the mobile network operators in the country, uh, and very successful. Really, you know, large numbers of users. They couldn't find the right way to make it work on a a profit based or a fee based basis. Yeah. It just wasn't working, mm-hmm. uh, and so in their case, they were able to make the case to the government that you know this is. Something because it's health messaging, mm. um, and the government had been a stakeholder from the beginning. Right. Um, that this made sense for the government to fund, right. Right? and so the government has funded that, right. and so that's continuing to to move on. Right. I mean, it, I was thinking as part of this idea of sustainability and actually building into resilience. I think it mm. covers both of these. You also mentioned education. Yeah. So, do you do any, or do you participate in any programs or any businesses as well that educate people? all the way up to like coding and building that technology and then letting them become resilient and sustainable themselves, right? So to perpetuate that. Yeah, it's it's a really good question. So we've not been as active in partnering with organizations that are doing that as I as I would like. Yep. Um, you know, I 
I'll just accept. I'll take the fault for that. Um, but there are there are organizations that are doing some interesting stuff um, in that space. Like I was just reading about the other day. Um, uh, there's a Canadian organization called Blockchain Learning Group that yep. is doing. They're teaching um, high school girls to. Um, develop in blockchain. Yeah, girls right. that, there's girls that code or, you know, all these types of organizations. And to be fair, they're all new. And yeah. there are a lot of them. Yeah. And maybe it's incumbent upon all of us to kind of use the tool to see which ones are actually working, right? That, that gets back to this. It's like, how do you want to evaluate which ones are good? Just because exactly. they're known doesn't mean they're great. Yeah, yeah and that's, that's the due diligence side of the tool. Yeah, yeah so like thanks it. for bringing it back to that. Um, that that side of it is really to help you to ask some of those questions. Like, so, okay, I've seen that they have been in the media, right? right? But lots of things, yeah, lots of things are in the media. It doesn't necessarily make it good. Um, So then what do I have to, what other questions should I be asking? What should I be thinking about? Um, You know, how do they, what's, What's their viability? You know, I don't want to partner with someone that they're going to go bankrupt in a year. Right. 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 You have a component in the tool which is around that evaluating the partners you work with. Yeah. Uh, What are some of the questions or some of the examples of you see in terms of partners, what the organizations should be looking at? Are values an important factor you should be considering? Or is it just their technical uh, financial capability? Yeah, so for on the finance side, I mean, I think I want to know where, how are they funded, right? If there's a an organization that is, they're doing a lot of work in tech, but their funding has always been dependent on donors, mm-hmm. either directly or indirectly, yep. because sometimes they're not directly funded by a donor, but all of their clients are donor-funded organizations, right? right? So, <laughs> so now you have two, two pieces of uh, separation from that money, and again, it gets back to the sustainability thing. There's this loop that's coming out of this conversation that says yeah. like it's resilience into sustainability, back into resilience, yeah. right? And part of that is this financial sustainability. Yeah, and because ultimately, about. I mean, one of the things that I say is that if the technology that we are using to try and help people to be more resilient Mm -hmm. if the technology is not resilient in itself if it's not sustainable then how can it help with long-term resilience right so if it's going to if you're working with a partner who's going to go bust um you know how is that going to work and then on the value side yes i mean for me i work in a we're a non-profit we have a we're a values-based Organization, you know, we have a mission that is about you know social good and about seeing good. So for me, yes, I mean, I want to know that. Am I partnering with a a company or an organization that reflects those values, or at least doesn't do anything opposed to those right. values? Right? Are there any examples you could point us to about where there's maybe a conflict between the values of the organization which you're trying to sort of promote, promote, and the values of the, the, the tech supplier, tech supplier, yeah. providers, yeah. maybe there's a conflict there, or maybe that those values, their values are undermining what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, so um, you know, with, without naming names, you know, I was a colleague of mine was sharing an example from uh, some of the work that they've been doing in a country where they were working with um, a transgender population, right? And one of the tech firms that they were potentially looking to work with for some of the outreach that they were doing um, was you wouldn't, I mean, they, their qualifications were, were good and mm-hmm. were all there, um, but 
it turned out that one of the um, founders was also very actively involved in the anti-transgender um, movement right, in, right. The, in the country. Um, so that's, a, that's just a reflection point, right, where I think you should ask and say, like, is that the type of partner that we want to be right. working with? Now, obviously, there are other... Um, procurement factors too and you know ultimately there's regulations and guidance about all this that I'm not talking about you know so I'm just talking sort of in the abstract about things that we should be thinking about at least to at least so that we're aware right and so the tool is helping to prompt us to think about some of these questions and so within it within each module there's a a question that prods for reflection um, and an analysis right so it's just prompting us just to think right I just want to make sure I want to just encourage people to think about some of these things. Yeah. The last question I want to ask you, sorry, is just from a big picture standpoint, right? Thirty-five thousand feet view. What do you want to see more of? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, with the idea that funding is really important, that we understand sustainability, we understand resilience. But what would you like to see, like a focus on or more of, if you could have it? Yeah. So I, three things uh, that are really important to me in, in this space. Uh, you know, one is really just thoughtful um, use of technology, um, whether it be for resilience or just more broadly development, what have you, right? And sometimes that means, you know, technology is not always the answer. So sometimes it's a non-tech solution, but it's really just being thoughtful about looking at all these factors that we talk about in the tool on the planning and just making sure that you've really considered them before you come to a conclusion about what you're what technology might help to with what you're trying to do. Yeah. Right. The the other thing, and this is one of the reasons why I really I like resilience as a, a framing beyond just the the positive framing of it, is that resilience is pretty broad, right? You can drive a big truck through that mm-hmm. definition. Yep. Um, and what I like about it though is that, you know, I work in a world where a lot of things are sectoral. Um, the money is often sectoral, right? So you'll hear people talk about the, well, no, I can't do this because the, it's this is health money, right, but I right, want right. to do something that's mm-hmm. not explicitly health, right? Right, that's water-related, um, which isn't directly... It's exactly. Yeah, but yeah, fair yeah. enough. Um, and so to me, you know, if we talk about... When we think about resilience, resilience is not sectoral, no. right? If I'm an individual or in my community... I have there are health factors that I have to be prepared for um, that will make me more resilient. There are economic and livelihood factors that it's, I have to prepare. It's deeply holistic. Yeah, it's very holistic, exactly. Um, and so the but then when we look at technology, you know, you can start to and this leads into the third thing that I really want to see more of is that you can have layering of technologies that then have multiple. You know, they're each one may be looking at sort of a vertical, but when you layer them on top of each other, then we have a more holistic um, approach. So just as a very, very quick example, you know, if I'm an individual who has access to a mobile-based um, emergency health insurance through my phone, right? right? Uh, and then I also, so that helps me if there's a medical emergency. I'm more resilient to that. Uh, and then I also have access, let's say I'm a farmer, I have access to agronomic information through my phone, which then is helping me to increase my, improve my yields, uh, and then earn more money. All right, so then I'm more resilient in that regard. Now, what that requires is often collaboration. Right? So that's the third thing, is we need to be collaborating a lot more. Mm. Because the reality is, 
things are still sectoral, both for funding and also because of sometimes it's just easier. It's much easier to develop something that's like it's an agronomic information service, mm -hmm. right? That's much cleaner than I'm going to create this walled garden of everything for resilience. Like where do you even begin to start? Right. right? So if we have people, more collaboration happening, and so that when people are sharing and promoting, you know, that a service or a, you know, um, a product that they have in health, well then what are also other things that are beneficial to that same person but they're not health related and how can we collaborate and share and make sure that and that our systems are interoperable and then yeah. so that you know so there's a lot that needs to happen on the collaboration side as well um, you know that we've tried to bring people together so the workshops one of the reasons why yeah. we've done that is to try and get people together to start to collaborate cross sectorally right. and think about some of these challenges um, but yeah it's a there's still a ways to go but I think it's getting better I'm optimistic in that regard but yeah okay. I've got one final question. Go for it. Uh, we're talking about thoughtfulness. So outside of this development space that you work in, what would you like to see in terms of platforms and technology companies being more thoughtful about how they engage with society and their kind of their user base? Sure. Um, so I'll say this is. I'm giving my personal, yeah, you know, sure. opinion of this, obviously, um, but this is something that I spend a lot of time uh, thinking about, and I, I think that there are, there's a lot of unintended consequences that we already are aware of um, that are still not being addressed in the sort of commercial tech world. Uh, there are ones that are coming that we can realistically say, anticipate that this is likely going to be an issue, um, that there's not enough preparation or consideration, at least in terms of how they are, what they're publicly sharing with the world in terms of, you know, their preparation. So, yeah, I mean, I would love to see like the... dealing with the issues after, the, after they happen. A lot of it is after the fact, yeah. And there's, you know, when we start to get into artificial intelligence and, you know, there's going to be a lot of unintended consequences. We already know some of them, um, but there's going to be a lot more. And so I'd like to see that be in the ethos of the tech community, is that beyond just thinking about what are all of the amazing things we can do with tech, because there's a lot of really cool things that can right. be done, right? As you're doing that, as you're having that thinking, also thinking, and how can this also be intentionally or unintentionally used for evil or in ways that really harm people. Right. And so how can we build in then from the beginning protections right. against that, right? And at least, and we, we're not going to be able to protect everything. Evil is always going to pop up, but we need to at least be vigilant in thinking about, yeah, you know, expect it expecting it, yeah. Yeah, but look, that's a really great way to end. I want to say thank you to both of you. Dan, it's always awesome to have you here. And Josh... Ordered. Did I get that right? You did. Okay. Thank so, you very much. All stressed out about that. <laughs> it was great to have you as well. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Yeah, thanks thank you both. That was great being here.